Welcome to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. On today's installment, myself, Kyle Kimbrell, and Johnny Owens, owner, founder, president, um, really cool guy of Owens Recovery Science, we interview Dr. Mark Manyago. Dr. Manyago is a professor within the University of Colorado's physical therapy program, and he has particular research interests in persons with multiple sclerosis. So he drops some knowledge on Johnny and I about how best to perform this in persons with multiple sclerosis, what their curiosities are from a research perspective, and he discusses their plans for um, the recent grant funding they received to look at resistance exercise with BFR in persons with multiple sclerosis. As always, if you have questions, curiosities, topics that you would like for us to cover on our podcast, shoot them our way at info at owensrecoveryscience.com and just put podcast question or hashtag podcast or something in the in the subject line or the first line of the email or something like that and we'll get it and we'll we'll take a peek at it and, and try to tackle that for you so with no further ado we'll kick it over to jimmy mckay this is the owens recovery science podcast hosted by physical therapist johnny owens all right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science podcast. This is Johnny Owens here with the man on the wheels of steel, Kyle Kimbrell, rocking it out. And today we have a friend, an awesome guest, and something that we get a lot of questions about, and that is blood flow restriction with multiple sclerosis. This is Mark Menaggio. Menago, Menaggio. Did I say it right, Mark? Menaggio. 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 I grew up in West Texas, man. I mean, India. it gets a little bit cultural. I, I can't even pronounce it, man. So, Mark. But Johnny's is, wife is Mexican. Mexican I was going to say, so. you got to have like tons of Enyes <laughs> around where you grew up. Dude, you don't think I, I hear grief all the time from my, <laughs> my mother-in-law, my daughters. My oh, yeah, wife. your wife. Your, is your wife from Mexico? Her family is, you know, like third generation thing. But yeah, they're San Antonio, like serious you know, Latino. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like she's already putting out Day of the Dead decorations right now. And so, nice. yeah, but she understands that I'm an imbecile when it comes to uh, yeah. anything like I'm this. Married, I'm married into that myself, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm goofy white, white guy syndrome. That's that's where I'm at. So anyways, Mark, let me just do your bio real quick, man. So you're assistant professor um, at the PT program at University of Colorado Medical Campus. Um, you, you went from Chicago and then landed um, for your master's in Colorado. And it sounds like you never left. So you've been at University of Colorado ever since. You got your doctorate of physical therapy there. You did your PhD there. Um, and I don't freaking blame you. It's amazing out there. So if, if I could handle the cold and I could get my Latino wife to handle the cold, I would be out there all the time. But but it doesn't happen. So um, anyways, how we met and why you're on today is because um, you're you're kind of one of the leaders and, and someone who focuses on neurologic conditions and multiple sclerosis in particular. Um, and so you've, you've kind of, that's what your, your background is and what you do at the university of Colorado. I saw this too, man, you got the K-12 award for the court program, which is pretty cool. Yeah, correct. So it's been a good year for, yeah, for, that, man. for, 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 uh, 
for grants at least. Yeah. Well, nothing else is good this year. But that, if you get one grant, I mean, that's amazing. But you, I know so it's, you've it's, landed it's, a couple. So the court, I, I don't know that well, but it's like Pitt, Delaware, WashU, right? Yeah, I mean, those are the three core institutions: yeah. Pitt, Delaware, WashU, and then there's there's several kind of affiliated institutions. Um, <clears throat> CU is one of them. Uh, different yeah, yeah. PT and OT programs around around the country. I, I don't know the, the total number, but uh, yeah, so it's a it's an internal uh, K award. So they hold it at WashU, and then they they have like an application pool from just the member institutions. So yeah, basically the the leaders in our in our academic world are all part of this, and and you landed that. Um, and then as well, you were, you got the, uh, MS consortium centers, um, grant for a blood flow restriction project with muscle sclerosis patients as well this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was the one that just came through. So it's a pilot award from the consortium of MS centers, CMSC. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, the project is to kind of look at the feasibility of, of, of BFR, uh, with resistance training, because I think we'll probably get into some of the literature that's out there that's done some other stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, people with MS, and, and actually more specifically people with MS who have more mobility limitations and more what we call, I guess, like more advanced disability. Yeah. And so uh, we definitely are going to lean on you to to get into the nitty gritty of of what MS is and and a lot of stuff we don't know. So, um, very cool. And that, that last grant, you and I have kind of worked together a little bit. I was trying to do whatever I could to, to give you <laughs> my basic insight and in, into at least BFR, but congrats, man, on getting. Yeah. That. Thanks so much. And yeah, yeah, I definitely appreciate all your, you're absolutely right. All the help and input you gave. Um, and we met at CSM and so uh, had a couple drinks and out. talked Talk to BFR. Oh, and, how this stuff always happens. CSM <laughs> and drinks. I can't tell you how. I know. And that's what we're, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I think we're going to feel the effects of, of the pandemic. Dude, I know. On science in that way, because there's no, uh, there's no like informal yeah, you know, I know. conference that. drinking into the night where you, where you, that's where you get all the good ideas. I mean, I think I lost like three or four studies next year <laughs> doing a virtual CSM because there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not sitting, and we were day drinking, yeah. dude. Right? So it was early. It was a little yeah. early. Yeah, it was lunch. lunch. Yeah, it was lunch. Well, it was lunch, so it's fine. It was, it was so, probably a Friday, maybe. Yeah. Saturday. And so I, I, I don't know, Kyle. So Mark and I met because Michael um, Bade. Also, we have the TKA trial going on at University of Colorado. Yeah, so, Mike Body has. Uh, Right. So that's how that's how even I got access to the equipment. So that's why I'm so white. I screwed up body. I couldn't. <laughs> I, I, Johnny is B-A-D-E. I don't know that. Johnny's, know Johnny's good about time. goofing up. Body's words. not it's a natural funny. one for me on yeah. that one. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's from Wisconsin. So yeah, they're, all, they're all backwards up there. Edit those up with that. <laughs> we edit that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Chicago, you know, so I'm a Bears fan. Um, yeah. Oh, you're not a cheese head. Yeah. You guys are great last Packers night. Fan, so that's that's where that comes from. That comes from a Bears Packer, Packers place. Nice. Not anywhere else. Uh, yeah. So Michael's got uh, we have the TKA trial going on right now, the remote TKA trial with blood flow restriction, um, seeing if we can do this and monitor remotely with patients post TKA. Um, and then he introduced me to you. We started drinking. Next thing you know, 
we're um, we're like we're funded. We're all the way this. We're funded, <laughs> man. Let's like do this. So so, anyways, man. Um, if you want to fill anything else I'm missing on your background, but I, I kind of want us to get into multiple sclerosis, um, kind of what the disease is, what you're seeing from how you see it clinically. Cause you, you know, what's cool about you is you're not only like faculty, but you work in a clinic um, as well to, to kind of help treat these patients. So I'm going to kind of let you roll brother. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, where, where do you want to start then? Do you want to start with uh... go over what multiple sclerosis is and sure. So going to rehab. Yeah. So MS is, um, it's an, obviously it's a neurologic, condition, um, but the mechanism is, is primarily an autoimmune dysfunction. Um, so it's a autoimmune uh, inflammatory disease that, that attacks the central nervous system. So it can attack uh, basically anywhere in, in the brain and spinal cord. It tends to, to be primarily in the brain and, and upper spinal cord. Um, and it causes all kinds of awful symptom problems and symptoms. So you know, demyelination, axonal loss, uh, you name it, it creates these sclerotic plaques that, that form in the brain and spinal cord um, that are kind of the hallmark lesions that you'll see uh, on an MRI. And um, really based on, you know, where the lesions are, it can cause almost anything, right? Sensory problems, motor problems, spasticity, hypertonicity problems, sensory problems, cognitive problems, visual problems. So there's a whole wide uh, uh, variety of symptoms uh, in MS, although most people um, have some sort of weakness and, and some sort of difficulty walking and, and with mobility. So that tends to be a lot of the target of, of rehab and tends to be what people, studies for, for show pretty consistently, that's what people tend to find most important are, are problems yeah. with walking and, and yeah. mobility uh, and want to focus on those areas too. So, so those, um, and by people, you mean patients, Mark? Or? Sorry. Yeah. Patients with MS. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or patients, uh, clients, what would have you. Yep. Whatever. Yep. Exactly. So, so, use. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the other, I guess, kind of unique things about MS is it is, um, it's, it's a, chronic slash progressive disorder. So, right, it'll, there's neurogeneration that happens over time. Um, recently, there's been a lot of, um, recently in the last maybe five, 10 years, a lot of uh, breakthroughs in terms of what we call disease modifying therapies or, or drug therapies that, that have really um, helped to control uh, relapses in the beginning of the disease. Um, but it's still, uh, you know, considered a chronic uh, slash uh, progressive condition. And then the other unique thing about it is that it affects uh, mostly women. Uh, and then it also tends to affect mostly young adults. At least that's when the symptoms on onset start. So it's actually, I think, the most common uh, like chronic or, or sort of progressive neurological condition in young adults. So that's kind of the, uh, that's actually what, what got me really I think extra passionate about the, the condition is, is starting to see it clinically. We have a big MS center at the University of Colorado and, and just being able to directly identify with people that are kind of going through the same, you know, getting married, starting a family, all those kind of things, working full time. And then all of a sudden they got MS and it just makes things obviously a lot more difficult. So. It's a um, trees almost, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then, 
there's a <clears throat> there's a, some geographic, uh, I guess, um, markers. I was actually going to ask this. Yeah, I, so. I was actually going to ask this because that's what I remember from school. Is that it <laughs> yeah, seemed like there was a higher incidence of people that lived in like northern communities, cooler climates, if you will. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's still that that association. They're, they're still not exactly sure why. So so no one really knows, you know, what causes MS. It's probably some combination of genetics and environment and um and um what's the third thing genetics environment and can't think of it oh boy. I know. <laughs> so uh um but uh yeah there's like a it's a so it's it's there's higher prevalence in in the further away you get from the equator mm. essentially so like northern europe <clears throat> northern united states we we kind of Colorado kind of touches on that on on the bottom of that latitude, uh, Australia, New Zealand um, areas as well, Russia, um, and it's much less prevalent uh, like around the equator uh, in warmer climates. And so, one of the big factors that might drive uh, MS is vitamin D deficiency. And so that's maybe some of the thought is mm. that just less overall sun exposure. Um, but again, there's okay. all, there's lots of other factors like genetics, uh, smoking has been strongly associated with developing MS. And a higher overall mortality for MS compared to general? Uh, you know, I don't know the numbers on mortality off the top of my head. It, it's, it certainly can um, uh, influence that, but I, I don't think there's a, there's a huge difference in overall uh, lifespan when you have so primarily a, more disability driven than exactly i mean the quality of life certainly becomes lower um and there's lots of interesting research happening now about the interactions of aging in ms um but uh <clears throat> but it doesn't necessarily it, it's not a terminal illness by definition by so the course of someone say you're like 20 you know i remember my buddy we were in college and he was diagnosed with ms but he got arrested on sixth street in austin because they thought he was drunk and the right. dude didn't even drink. Right. It was right. one of those, he had his MS episode. Um, cops took him in and, you know, yada, yada. Um, he's doing pretty well. And I don't talk to him really that much anymore, but I'm, you know, he would have these, a relapse, be okay. Relapse, be okay. And so is that the typical course? Like you kind of are okay. Then you get this, you know, MS kind of episode takes you down a bit. And then, you know, fifth, sixth, de sixth decade of life, you're kind of disabled? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's so that's the, the interesting part about it is that it can really vary. So some people could have um, uh, a lot of relapses early on after they get diagnosed and have a really aggressive course. Um, some people have what, you know, there's, so there's different subtypes of MS. So the most common being relapse remitting. So that's kind of what you're talking about. Um, yeah. They could, some people, have immediately what's called a progressive form of MS. And so that's a kind of a slower decline, but a steady decline over the decades and years. Um, and uh, yeah, I, again, before these newer disease modifying therapies had come out, the, the, yeah, the more typical course of MS would be kind of a, you, you know, high, you know, you start kind of normal level of function, you have your initial attack, and you recover, I don't know, 80, 90% of that. And then goes another few years and you have another attack and then you recover another 80, 90%. And then it's just kind of a slow decline. But the, but the relapses 
you know, some people have them every year, some people have them every 10 years, some people have them every 20, 30 years. So that can really vary. Now with the new disease modifying treatments, they're really seeing a pretty meaningful and significant reduction in relapses. There's not the data to support that it's really, you know, that, that we know in 20, 30 years, it really is improving people's lives. But, but a lot of the neurologists that I work with really kind of seem to think that's going to be the case when, when, when they get those data. So. And, and so I know when you and I were first talking and working on this grant proposal, you know, it sounds like you try and focus a little bit more on the severe MS categories. Actually, no, this will be, you know, my first uh, study at least where I've only enrolled people with more uh, advanced disability. So. And how do you rate that? Where do you, where do you get that number from? Is there a scale? Yeah, so there's a, the, the kind of the standard scale. It's uh, called the expanded disability status scale. Mm -hmm. It goes from zero to 10. Zero is no disability. 10 is, 10 is actually death. Um, and, uh, and it's a variety. It's like a, it's a clinical exam. So it's like a neurologist exam um, or, you know, a, a neurologic exam plus some walking measures. Um, and then you, you rate people uh, on that scale. So it's like zero uh, and then it's an increments of, of 0.5 all the way to 10. And at, it's not really clearly defined where, where like severe disability comes in, but when you get to an EDSS, that's the, the abbreviation of six, it means you need a least a cane to walk hundred meters. Okay. And so for a lot of us, that sort of is a, where we start considering people to be more advanced disability. So yeah, the current study is going to, that'll be the minimum requirement as people need a cane. And then we'll also enroll six, six and a half, uh, and then seven and seven is really, you're in a manual wheelchair really most of the day propelling yourself. Um, but you can get up independently and take at least a few steps. Okay. So that's kind of what the range we're looking at. And um, there's huge, huge, huge gaps in the literature about that level of that range of disability. So yeah. that's a huge I, range for one point. It is, it is yeah. a huge, you're right. I mean, the, yeah. the scale is, a, it's a good example of, uh, of where those like kind of categorical ordinal scales break yeah. down of like, yeah. yeah, it goes in really gradual increments of like, can walk 500 meters, can walk 400 meters, three, and then all of a sudden it's like, you're in a wheelchair. Wheelchair, um, dead, dead. Yeah. Wheelchair dead, yeah. Well, when yeah. he said zero to 10 was nothing to dead, I went, that's, that's a big yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's <laughs> a big jump. Seven to 10 is like, you know. Yeah confined to a wheelchair, bedridden, et cetera. So. Well, when you're rating, 10 is probably the easiest rating of all time. <laughs> 10 you is the easiest. But if, you, if you're a rating 10. a 10 as a, as, a, as a PT, it's not good. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> a bad day in the clinic. If you do. Uh, I never want a 10 on any one of my studies. No, no, that's why we did this, right? No 10s, yeah. no, no yeah. dead people. Yeah. So yeah. what's the standard rehab then? Or not, I mean, uh, hey, I'm sorry, I don't mean any standard, but what do you think is like a nice rehab approach from what we see in the literature right now? Well, there's pretty good guidelines, I mean, in terms of exercise, but they are pretty general. So there's uh, guidelines that were developed, I don't know, in 2012, 2013, we call them the Canadian guidelines because the Canadian uh, 
I don't know, health ministry or physical, I, I don't know exactly, adopted them. Uh, and it was a Canadian group that, that researched them. Uh, and it was basically the result of like a, a really nicely done meta-analysis. And, uh, and um, the recommendations for just sort of kind of, you know, day-to-day -day physical activity are resistance training uh, a couple times a week uh, in major muscle groups and aerobic training a couple times a week. And it's uh, done. I could have come up with that guideline. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> at moderate intensity. So it's nothing, you know, nothing too shocking. Uh, and then, you know, where it gets much more difficult is everything beyond that. There's, there's no standard, right? So um, you want, you, you certainly want people to be participating in some sort of exercise on a regular basis. And we know that's going to be helpful for their everything, right? I mean, just like every condition. Yeah. And, and, um, but uh, but again, like I was kind of alluding to in the beginning, there's so many uh, areas where things can go wrong uh, that uh, it's hard to think there's gonna there, there ever would be like a standard approach for you know yeah. for MS, right? Because you could have primarily vestibular imbalance problems and and have no strength deficits, right? Or yeah you could have all kinds of cerebellar kind of problems and coordination problems and, and very little strength problems or something. So, um, it, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, and then, you know, the other limitation as I was kind of also alluding to is you, um, those guidelines and all the research those guidelines are based on were basically everyone under a six. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, mm it's not always clear what you do with when people are in a wheelchair, for example. What about, what about the over exacerbation of exercise and making their symptoms worse? I mean, is that, yeah, so that, that used to be a big kind of question mark. It's pretty well established that now, um, even at pretty high intensities, people tolerate, I mean, there's always going to be exceptions, but in general, people okay. tolerate it pretty well and you're not going to make, you, you might, you might hurt them in, you know, well, they, they might feel the hurt, right, for a few days, yeah. and maybe longer yeah. than 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 someone without MS would feel the soreness and the fatigue. But you're not going to probably make the disease worse, yeah, by by overdoing not it, cause it to progress, or yeah, or by like pushing that. it. Uh, yeah, well, you bring on an MS episode. So when I, yeah. I went to school, right. like right. dark ages, and so that was it. Like, oh, with MS patient, I think our MS class was an hour. This is MS. Yeah. You can make them worse. Yeah, they all do. Right. You do aquatic therapy. Keep them cool and, and keep the pool cool. Don't keep don't delete the pool. Delete the pool. Yeah, you know, you're just like, <laughs> yeah. oh my god, I don't that was it for sure. Ah, I don't want to touch yeah. them. I'm gonna freak out. Yeah. <laughs> so that that's yeah. definitely that was the prevailing worry for a long time. Uh, now, um, yeah. Now now we're not. I mean, we're cautious, right? But we're we're not um, we're not worried. We're gonna set off an exacerbation. No. Is it difficult to actually get a, a true diagnosis? So I, I'm just, I had a an Air Force colonel that had MS type symptoms. Um, we actually did BFR on this guy, but he never really, you know, I, I he finally discharged and we never got a true diagnosis. You know, it was kind of like he was, you know, it could be sometimes a military thing. You're you're hesitant to throw diagnoses on people because yeah. there's this like disability thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but um, you know, it seemed like it was really hard for the neurologist to come to his, and I know neurological diseases are complicated. Is MS the same? Uh, it, you know, if this was a while ago, it, it was 
the diagnostic criteria um, might have been a little, there, there were a little, it was a little more difficult, I guess, to get that initial diagnosis. The, the diagnostic criteria, uh, I, I don't know all the, the subtleties off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a dissemination of time and space. So you have to have essentially two distinct points in time where you had symptoms. Um, and then, and then also th that needs to show up and, and be reflected on like an MRI uh, or, or now. And, and so now that's been compressed a little bit where I believe they can look at an MRI and, and kind of, you know, decide that you had a chronic lesion, now you have a new lesion, you, you reported symptoms in the past and now you're having symptoms again. So it's easier to get that diagnosis. They consider it now a spinal tap as well. Um, so, yeah. Um, it, so that's what they did. So MRI, you lesion based is really what you're looking at. I remember on him, it was spinal tap. They did an EMG. Um, I think they did an MRI as well. Yeah, but it's a clinical it's, diagnosis. Kind of the, sorry. Imaging is kind of the main thing for diagnosis. Yeah, the MRI and then the uh, spinal tap um, okay. to, 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 to detect it. And then, and then the clinical symptoms. So that, that's a big yeah. part of it is, is, is what you detect on the exam, but also, you know, if, they're, if they report like, oh yeah, a few years ago, actually, and this is pretty common, right? A few years ago, I had my, my whole, my hands went numb for like a week and then I went away or yeah. you know, my vision was blurry for a week and then I went away. Um, they're like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. And okay. they put it together and there's those two points and then they, they make the diagnosis. Okay. Um, That's kind of, kind of what my, my curiosity, um, Mark is, you know, I mean, a lot of people that listen to our podcast are physical therapists, or at least in situations where people make just kind of come in from the community to them because they're having trouble with something. Is there, you know, it sounds like from talking to you, there might be some distinct points in their life where they had some problems, um, some physical limitations, but are there, I don't want to say diagnostic criteria, but are there clinical pearls, things that might help someone pick up to say, you know, maybe I should be looking beyond musculoskeletal here. Yeah, this might like, be like clinical signs, some you know? kind of clinical kind of presentation that, that you would. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, certainly anything, you know, any upper motor neuron, uh, mm -hmm sign is going to be, you know, could, could potentially, right. It could be a million things, um, that, that could be, uh, you know, something that would, 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 you know, get lead to, to at least diagnosis of MS. Um, uh, you know, any, anything that's not kind of matching right in the standard kind of musculoskeletal exam, I think that, that kind of, uh, falls outside that, uh, could be explained by some sort of upper motor neuron, uh, lesion involvement. Um, you know, there are, there are more common first symptoms. So, so vision loss, optic neuritis is, is, is one of the more common um, things that happens to people. So it's a, it's a change. It's not always a complete loss of vision, but it's a, it's a loss and change or, or change in vision. It's typically painful uh, inflammation of the optic nerve. And, wow. uh, but it's, but it's transient. I mean, it recovers for the most part. Um, on its own. So, um, you know, sometimes that, 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 that could be a, definitely a huge sign, right. That, that's something, but something else is going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, what's so tricky about it. Um, and, and that's other piece that I think always attracted me to it is, is kind of the puzzle piece of it is, you know, you could have also, you know, numbness that might 
I'm sure you guys know, right? Like they get the MRI and they, they have a disc and, yeah. and they have numbness in their leg. And so that's what it is. And so then they get the surgery and then they come to PT to rehab from that. And it's not getting better. And, and then all of a sudden they, you know, leads them down the road to a neurologic diagnosis. So it's, it's tricky for sure. Sorry, man, I'm trying to get my Wi-Fi to work better all of a sudden. I'll, I'll pull it up my, uh, my uh, medical lecture because I'm like, shit, I better. Uh, no, that, that was <laughs> good. Yeah, I know. I mean. <laughs> so let's go back to this. So when we're day drinking in Colorado at CSM, um, what were your thoughts? I mean, I know, you know, there's already preliminary, but when you're looking at BFR, were you looking at this from a, this is primarily a, a strength and hypertrophy, maybe helps with gait. Or are there other things you were thinking, neuroprotection, hypoxic kind of stuff? So, um. yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I first uh, thought about it, um, it w I really went immediately to like what we were just talking about the people with more advanced disability, right? So, people that clinically, so a couple things, right? Like clinically, getting them on and off like a leg press or, you know, or, or, or them themselves, like trying to go to a gym and, you know, do something like that, like mobility wise, right. Just, just really not feasible for them to do or, um, or muscles that, you know, sometimes are, they're active, right. They have against gravity motion, but, but the machines we have in the clinic or, you know, the means we have in the clinic are, they, they can't, you know, push those weights or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, doing that, doing those kinds of strengthening protocols and really trying to dose it well. And, and we do try to, you know, be pretty precise with, with dosing with people with MS and, and progress them um, appropriately, because that does make a difference, uh, generally speaking. Um, to do that with someone that's really weak and has a lot of mobility limitations is really tough. Like, you know, trying to dose with different colored bands and tension and stuff. It just doesn't yeah. work that well. Um, so I really saw like, wow, this, you know, this modality could really help people. I, I saw a lot of potential in it in terms of people that have those mobility limitations um, and can only push low loads, um, you know, being able to, to, to add that in and, and really get um, strength changes. And, and hypertrophy and, and who knows I mean really that that's what I'm interested in finding out is the tip of the iceberg I think yeah I mean you know and and, and that's why this kind of framed as a feasibility study because because who knows if people are even going to tolerate it right I mean that's yeah. that's part of the big thing we've, we've done it a little bit in clinic um and yeah you want to go over kind of like what you've done so far <laughs> yeah I know I know it's small but I mean just you know, yeah, yeah I mean COVID cut that short pretty yeah. quickly but COVID, COVID's cut everything short yeah but we you know we've used it I mean really in uh in in our clinic you know with 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 the equipment that you uh provided us I've just had it on one person so um she is in what we would consider that EDSS of six. So she needs assistance to walk, but she, she can walk, um, you know, hundred meters at least. Uh, and um, it was amazing. She, first of all, she loved it. So she had a lot of, this was kind of an unexpected side effect, but she had a lot of neuropathic pain. Uh, like that was one of her main symptoms. She's also weak. Is that common? 
It can be. Yeah. 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 I mean, pain is actually another, you know, area if anyone's out there is thinking about doing some research in PhD and MS, pain and MS and neurologic yeah. conditions. In general. Well, we're doing a lot of work right now in Very understudy. Yeah. Yeah. But my, my Air Force Colonel guy, he had a lot of pain. Um, that was actually his probably most debilitating. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of, it's really, you know, talk about what you were saying, Kyle, like diagnosing maybe someone with a musculoskeletal comes to your clinic with musculoskeletal problems, but has maybe yeah. a neurologic diagnosis. Well, someone with known MS that comes, you know, they want to improve their walking, but they have all this pain in their back or their legs and mm -hmm. trying to determine where that comes from is that that's one of the hardest things that, that I do mm -hmm. on a clinical uh, I think clinically on, on a regular. And do you think that's the demyelination? The, it's like a neuropathic because. Well, that's, yeah, I mean that's why I think it can be so tough because it's, it's going to be primary, uh, yeah, from 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 the nerves. Um, but then, it, of course, it can be like pain that any of us get yeah. just from overuse. overuse, yeah. And then you also get really unnatural. Um, muscle imbalances, right? Just from, from, you know, selective weakness that then creates movement impairment and then that creates pain. Um, and so it's really, it can be really hard to, to distinguish one, one from the other and, and then how do you correct it? And, and, and so it gets overlooked a lot and kind of pushed aside or, or treated with medication. So, um, so one of the first things that she, said when she first had the the occlusion was oh my god my pain the pain in my leg is gone um and and then we started talking more and and for whatever reason this is not something i come across regularly with people who have ms but uh you know she i guess commonly would like apply pressure like squeeze really squeeze her legs or she said she had her young daughter like sit on her legs um, huh. to help relieve her pain. So she was like, I mean, this person is, she could be one of your spokespeople uh, for, for <laughs> BFR. She freaking loves it. Um, Too funny. And, uh, you know, so, so again, that, that's one person, um, but, but not only, so this was surprising to me because not only did she tolerate it, but, but she like yeah. couldn't get enough of it. She like wanted to come in more and more for it. Just, just not even, she didn't care about the strength thing as much. I mean, she did, but she felt better. Just, just the pressure. Um, yeah, she found uh, to give her relief, and so that was. Uh, I'd love to to know if other people kind of have that experience. And so interestingly enough, I just I just taught a course um, in. I, we advertised this course as Tulsa, Oklahoma, but technically it was Okmulgee, Oklahoma, which is about forty five minutes south of Tulsa. Okay. Cool freaking town. It's like an old oil town, great like old buildings and the place we did the course and is, is in this old building. Um, I'm from the, Texas, nothing in Oklahoma is cool. I know, I know, I know. I went to, I went to college in Oklahoma, but I'm from Texas, I'm, I'm with you. Um, but just hear me out on this. So right. this is a cool, really cool clinic. It's called Impact Rehab Wellness. Um, the guy that owns it, his name's Michael Siegenthaler. He and his wife own it. Uh, his wife's yeah, what up, Mike? What up, Mike? Um, she he's a PT, she's an OT. So she had, um, a patient that had chronic regional pain syndrome. Um, they'd been working on her for, I forget her diet. Oh, she had, you know, she was, it was after a distal radius fracture. She had distal radius fracture, ended up with crips. 
um, they've been trying all these different things and she'd been coming for a while before they ever had um, a device to do VFR with. And Michael was like, why don't you just try this on her? Just see. And the, the thing that they said was as soon as they inflated the tourniquet and got that restriction is her pain was gone. It's like completely gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the, and the relief lasted for a while. They did some exercises of course and everything. Um, but that was the, the hallmark is they said the pain just like it went away and it hadn't gone away forever. And, and there was some lasting relief. It wasn't like it, you know, all came back, but it also wasn't like they repeatedly did this and it totally went away either. So it was kind of somewhere in the middle, but that was, it was interesting to hear you say that because I had a similar conversation just this weekend about that. So. Yeah, and that's exactly what she would report too. Is that it was it would give her relief that day. I don't remember exactly how long, but it wasn't yeah. like you said. It wasn't like it cured it, but but it was more than just the having it on. It just day. makes you think there's something there. You just wonder what you know. Yeah, yeah, it, it, I, I agree. I mean, that definitely made me wonder because it was so dramatic uh, of an effect yeah. for her, and it was so clear. It's um, a big deal. You take somebody's brain off. And I and I'd known this person for a long time, so I knew about that pain. And like I said, we just we had done a lot of clinical kind of exam on that and, and digging, and, and we just we eventually just came to the conclusion. This was years ago because I've seen her off and on for for I don't know maybe ten years. That you know it's neuropathic pain. Uh, you know uh, um, what's the medication? Um, neurotin. Neurotin. Neurotin kind of helps. You know, so so it does okay we're just going to kind of ignore it and keep exercising mm. um, is, is kind of where we were at with that. And then this really, you know, mm. um, affected it. So unfortunately we weren't able to really do this long-term with her just because we got cut short um, yeah. with, with COVID stuff. Um, but she is, uh, she's actually going to be a, a consultant. I, I actually budgeted her into the study. So we'll, we'll pay her to consult in the study and, and we'll also start, kind of running through the protocol with her when, you know, before we enroll people. Um, so, so we'll make sure she gets, um, Hey man, you didn't, you didn't budget me in, and when you budget the, uh, when you budget uh, the person, uh, who, uh, who I'd rather you, stuff. I'd rather you budget her in a thousand. Yeah. We run, you run into all kinds of problems when you budget the person who, uh, <laughs> who provides the equipment hey, man, I, I ride that line I ride yeah, they don't like that or i mean they you know it's it, uh yeah no but this is a big deal so i i mean we're really looking at this from the orthopedic side you know and yeah luke hughes who's over we you know he he's works close with us has looked at endogenous opioid kind of upregulation from bfr i don't know if that would help with an ms person or not but neurotin's a freaking nightmare it is. Um, and so we had so many problems with that, with the service members in the DOD. I mean, side effects in neurotin. Side effects, oh, um, yeah. depression, weight, you know, a service member that gets weight gain. It's just like, yeah. you know, they, they get in this deeper funk. So, you know, we were just trying to do whatever we could do to get off neurotin. So, you know, finding something to avoid these, these drugs like that, I, th- I think is huge. Um, so it's super, that's super cool to hear. And hopefully, yeah. you know, that's, that's the thing we always kind of, we see these kind of like extras with this right now, you know? So if you get this like analgesic benefit or pain, but then also it does increase strength and hypertrophy and increases function. That's just like, 
it's, it's hard enough to get patients to come to rehab in general. Um, but if you are like this person, I'm going to give you some pain relief. And if you do this long enough, you're going to get some strength and hypertrophy and maybe some functional changes. Um, it's almost like kind of icing on the cake, which is pretty cool to me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it'll be interesting. Again, that was kind of her, her, her unique experience. Right. So, um, and then, and then she tolerated it super well for, for all the different strengthening exercises. So do you remember your, I can't remember from the grant, your LOP used on her was 60% her limit. No, we went to 80 with her. 80. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll target up to 80. Uh, and lower extremity, lower extremity. Uh, we, we, uh, so go over, do you remember, just kind of go over what a session's like, just in yep. case people are listening yeah, to so, um, so we're going to target, uh, and again, these are people that are need assist to walk or, or even have trouble maybe with sit to stand, um, and transfers and, and can barely walk at all. Uh, we're going to strengthen plantar flexors, ankle plantar flexors. Um, yeah, I guess knee and hip extensors. We put it in the protocol. So like a, like a leg press, leg press yeah. uh, and, um, and then hip abduction. So. So the hip abduction piece and, and really the ankle plantar flexion piece too come out of a lot of the work that I've, that I've done prior to this um, that has found those muscles to be, and again, this is lower disability, so it may, might not generalize as well, um, but uh, those muscles particularly to be really key drivers of, of, of at least walking in people with MS. So it's kind of that proximal stability and that power generation tend, yep. tend to Kind of drive the, calf is, the calf is all that matters for gait. Well, right. And the calf is, is really obviously all that matters for gait, but, but for MS also, there's a lot of proximal weakness. And so, and, and, you know, I think we talked about this, uh, over, over, uh, CSM and drinks is, is it'd be just interesting to see also, you know, proximal to the cuff. So we'll put the cuff on the, yeah. on the lower extremity that, you know, if we can, um, have some, uh, hip abduction changes. Um, so, so that's the protocol. And then, and then the, the, the mode or the modality, well, I guess the mode, I guess it would be the modality would be the BFR, but the mode is going where I, I didn't want to use the traditional weight training machines. Um, because you, even this patient who, who could walk independently, you know, our leg press in our gym is like eight inches off the ground. And so getting her on and off that thing is a nightmare. Um, and so someone coming out of a wheelchair, it would virtually be impossible. Um, so we are going to use this little um, device called the shuttle mini press, mini shuttle press. Yeah, mini the mini press. shuttle. Yeah. Mini shuttle press. Yeah. So, um, and, and, uh, and really it should be, you know, it looks like it'll be enough. I mean, we have them, we've tried it, you know, to, to dose most people because, uh, you know, if you're doing, um, you know, that low of a load, uh, then um, that, that should be plenty of resistance. And actually with her, with some of the stuff we piloted, like for her hip abduction, all she could tolerate was supine uh, active range of motion. Yeah, yeah. Um, with the towel, like, so she needed actually even a little bit of reduction of the friction that was there naturally. Um, and just active range of motion and she could barely get through those sets. Um, so we're using that 
you know, 30, 15, 15, 15, um, dosage. And, uh, it was, uh, it was tough for her. So yeah, it, I think it'll be really cool. Uh, and then we're going to run into people who are also gonna, um, you know, probably not be able to move the ankle all that well. And so right now we're trying to figure out exactly what our protocol would be, you know, for isometric or active, maybe even active assistive we might be doing, uh, for at least for the ankle. Um, so, um, it'll be interesting, I think, to, to see how, how it all plays out. Um, yeah, I think we might have to look at isometric, you know, potentially for, for at least that plantar flexor. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, all right, there's literature out there right now. Um, and I'm going to use the term literature sparingly when it comes to MS and BFR. So, yeah, so, yeah. One of them published right when I was submitting my grant, I was got me nervous. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're okay. Uh, yeah. They use quite a different approach. There's yeah. actually, can I, can I talk about stuff that's about to be published? I think so. Yeah. So there's a, someone that Evan Cohn, who's a, who's a PT um, and faculty member out at Rutgers. Um, he is, he's also a consultant. Sorry, Johnny. He's also a consultant on, on the grant. So he's, he's been also playing with, with BFR uh, and MS as well. Um, and he, um, has a case study that, uh, that he has out uh, in review right now. Um, so, so that might be coming, coming out soon. And, um, his, his case study, his patient with MS did not tolerate it particularly well, but did tolerate it, but did not tolerate 80%, uh, at least from what he told me. Um, so I'm sure we'll get that you know, that whole range of response in terms of, you know, what, what people tolerate and what they can sure, do. Sure. Um, but yeah, she was I, also, I think that person was also really high functioning. She was a runner and, and things like that. So it's a different, yeah, she was probably also pushing loads that were way higher than, than I mean, in our study will do. We, we see it with a, a pro athlete. Some of them don't tolerate. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of a baby when I first see a person. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, yeah, tolerance is a is a different thing to everybody when it comes to this. If your so, patient is really wanting to do BFR, you gotta wonder if you're doing actual yeah. BFR. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless they're getting something like if they're getting pain relief. I pain relief, yeah, different for yeah. sure. Someone yeah. comes in like, I love this, let's do it. It's like, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if I'm it's doing like, well. it. Yeah, I, I I did it myself for a couple of weeks and it was uh yeah, I did, I did, I never wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah. People are always asking me, like, you know, I'm traveling. Do you just like do this in the hotel room all the time? I'm like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> hell no. It hurts. It's awful. Uh, I'll just go like work out or something. All right, man. So here's the kind of probably the the main paper that's out right now. Effectiveness of blood flow restricted, slow walking on mobility and severe MS, a pilot randomized trial. So it's out of Italy. It was in Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science 2020. It just came out um, this year. So um, I guess I'll just kind of go through this. So yeah. it was an end of 24. They're, they're EDSS scale was a 5.5 to 6.5. They said severe. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, that's where, 
that's where that sometimes there's not a there's not a clear cutoff. Sometimes people consider that five and a half to be to be mm -hmm. severe. Uh, okay, but it's but that's what I you know the similar about this study, which I you know I I imagine they're thinking the same thing clinically is like it makes more sense for people that have more yeah restriction. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, cool. a lot, I think a lot of these disease type non-orthopedic populations, we, we have to kind of look at these higher disability targets, you know, this Parkinson study that we just did, it was with pretty severe Parkinson conditions and they did really well. A lot of the other ones, it's like, yes, they can just exercise, you know, but like right. you said, if you can barely get this person on a leg press, how are you going to be like, get them on a leg press and let's go for a same percent one RM when I can hardly even get you into the chair, Yeah, uh, you know? So. And I think the other call for neuro, you know, just to not to diverge too much, but the other call in general for another logic therapy is like, we got to think about our dosing. And, and I think a lot of times we don't think about our dosing that much and we're happy just to like give them the yellow TheraBand and then the red one and then yeah. kind of like estimate, some, you know, yeah. roughly at, I don't know what, right. 15 reps or something. And, yeah. um, and and so I think that's the other really appealing part of this, especially from the scientist side of me is like, can we really get pretty specific about, you know, occlusion and dosing? Yeah, I think BFR, it, it becomes so standardized. That's what I love about it as well. It's like, how much was your occlusion pressure? We did this specific set and rep scheme and what was your dosing? Um, you know, it, it, it kind of lines you up where you're not like, here's yellow TheraBand, do three of 15 and you're just doing glorified range of motion. Exactly. Which is yeah. wasting your, your poor patient's time, you yes. know, and giving them like false hopes. So yeah, the standardization. I think, a, I think that the dosage is a, is a piece that's just lost too much in our, in our profession and whether it be musculoskeletal or not just neuro, neurologic, it's not, <laughs> right, yeah, it's, exactly. it's not like, it's not like muscle magically responds to a lower stimulus when you have a neurologic condition. Yeah, yeah. It's still muscle. We, we know yeah. what you have to do to muscle to get it to change. Yeah. Yeah. It's our job to figure out how to do that to muscle, but we got to know what to do in order to, in order to be able to do it. So. Yeah. All right. So back on this study, this study did not do resistance training. Yeah. So this study, um, again, probably the first real MS BFR study we have, um, 24 subjects, 12 and 12. So 12 in control, 12 in the BFR group. Here's, here's starts to get into our problems with this study. So they did it two times a week for six weeks, which is just, that's fine. That's a good, good kind of protocol. So 12 visits, but then their occlusion was 30% of systolic blood pressure on the lower extremity. So they took BP on the upper extremity and then they did 30% of systolic blood pressure which basically they just did a sham intervention. That's like 30, if, if you're at 130 systolic blood pressure, that's 39 millimeters of mercury of occlusion. Most of our sham protocols are 50 millimeters of occlusion and, and under. So already when you read this, you're like, you basically did a sham protocol. I, I think they were maybe nervous. Um, it would make sense, yeah. yeah. So. Uh, I mean, as soon as I read that, I was like, this, yeah. this was almost zero occlusion at all. And I, and I think where you can tell that is, um, you know, when they looked at the BFR group and compared to the control group, radiant perceived exertion was harder in the control group than the BFR group. If anyone's ever done BFR ever in their life, right? You know, yeah, it's going to be way harder.
harder than a low level stimulus. Um, and also heart rate didn't increase in the BFR group, the control yeah. group did. So if you're including an artery with blood flow restriction, heart rate's gonna automatically go up just from the exercise pressure reflex. Right. Or if you're blocking venous return, stroke volume goes down, heart rate's gonna go up. So yeah. when you start to see hemodynamics aren't changing, you're already questioning, like you're not really occluding, I don't think. So yeah. RPE didn't change, hemodynamics didn't change. Um, they use this thing called an inclusion cuff, which I know it's a pump up one. So we know those don't even hold pressure. Um, they're thin. So 39 millimeters of mercury on an inclusion cuff is basically zero occlusion on your vessels. They even put a note in there that they would have to put it back on and repump it up to try and get it. Yeah. So, um, fatal flaws already off the bat. And then their design was really wrong. I think. And I don't know why people just don't do work matched. I mean, why would you have a control be so different than the, the BFR group? So the BFR group did one minute on yeah. walking, then they deflated the cuff for a minute and they did that for three times and they did that for five bouts. So they did 15 total minutes of walking. Um, and then they, and so they were doing this interval kind of walking <laughs> and the control group, they just said, walk straight for 40 minutes. Yeah completely yeah. different different volumes between the two groups <laughs> they had yeah. more rest in the bfr group than they did more rest work time. In, in the bfr group <laughs> what 22 they minutes of rest 15 the minutes BFR of work group, time. <laughs> if if after a week they were able to complete that one minute interval they would tell them to walk faster the next week so they added three yeah. more feet to their so they they had them work on walking yeah. faster so interval almost like sprints they were having the bfr group do in the control group, they just did 40 minutes. And so the results were this, the BFR group um, only walked about 435 um, meters compared to the control group who would walk about 855 meters. The standard deviation in the control group alone was 478 meters. So the standard deviation was more than what the BFR group walked. So the control group walked steady state a ton more the the bfr group which is doing these like kind of fast sprint interval kind of walks um so the bfr group had a smaller increase in heart rate that's a problem bfr should never have a smaller increase in heart rate and they had a lower rpe that's a problem bfr people should never have a lower rpe than just a control and at the end of the day they said that the control group had a slower increase in their walking speed. So gait speed increased in the BFR group, but it didn't increase in the control group. The BFR group, all they did was work on increasing their gait speed. Little one minute fast walks, one minute fast walks, one minute fast walks, each week increase a little bit. The control group just walked 40 minutes, you know, for steady state, the entire intervention. And then their discussion even said, um, it looks like interval walking is, better for people with MS in a randomized crossover trial subjects with MS walked further and with less fatigue when walking intermittently compared to continuously uninterrupted. Um, so in my mind, I think this is a throwaway study to me. Minimal to zero occlusion. The one group got faster they're walking, but they trained them to walk faster doing these quick little minute interval like walks compared to the control group that just did long 40 minute walks. And they, they didn't say when they retested them. 
Um, so the, if the control groups walk in basically a mile at a time, the, the BFR interval groups, you know, walking less than a quarter of a mile and then you retest them a day or two after the, the six weeks, the control group's probably a little bit of a beat down group compared to the BFR group. That was, that was my takeaway. I, I hadn't read the study fully until this weekend, but what do you guys think of that one? Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, there basically wasn't any differences, right? So the, the, the between group comparisons were all non-significant. So, yeah. um, and it's not surprising, like you said, looking at the intensity of the control group and what they did compared to the, um, the intervention group. And I, I would speculate exactly what you're saying is that really, I think they probably were more interested in, hey, is this gonna be safe yeah. and feasible? And, and, and I think, I, I understand if, if that's what their kind of, I think, bottom question, bottom line question was, I understand as a researcher, the, the difficulty of that question, right? Because, um, because if you're interested in safety and feasibility, which is, which is the kind of the main aim of our award, um, everyone's going to get the BFR. There's no control group. Um, and that's a big limitation, especially when you go to publish it. Um, but, but ultimately you want to know, you want to get as many people through as you can to see um, who tolerates it and who doesn't. Um, and so I think you, you sacrifice some of that stuff when you, when you do these small randomized control trials where you underdose um, and really underpower. I mean, even if, even if they had dosed it more aggressively and, and done more inclusion with, with 12 people, um, yeah. You know, you might not have any differences anyway. No, it's so, a, it's a, it's um, definitely a pilot. Part of, part of doing research though, is you have to be a little bit risky um, to, to test your, your hypothesis. I, I, I would really say they did nothing from an occlusion standpoint in this study, you know, a, a narrow pump up cuff at right. probably under 40 millimeters of mercury. That's yeah. a sham treatment. So, you know, <laughs> If I reviewed this paper, I would have destroyed it. Um, seriously. And, and this one of the authors on this has a similar paper um, where they showed nothing happened. He, he did this other cuff, this B-strong one, and showed it did nothing different than low-level exercise. No increase in lactate, no increase in hemodynamics, no increase in RPE. And his final conclusion was, well, it's safer than a wide surgical cuff. Well, well hell yeah. <laughs> Sure, it is because it's doing nothing, you know. So um, it's straightforward. So these kind of things drive me crazy. There's no problem for me. Like, I mean, I don't look at the study and think it was designed to determine safety and uh, feasibility. Like, when you look at their, I mean, they say that that's what it was, but I'm like, well, how are you determining that? I mean, like, just the fact that there weren't adverse events. Same with the the B strong stuff. You make they made those statements about it looks like it's safer and more feasible, but it's like, well that's not how you design the trial. Like you need to design the trial to show that, which it sounds like Mark, you have, I mean, you're, everybody's going to go through this. We're really kind of looking like, is this tolerated? Is this feasible done? That's what you're looking at. You know, um, you can't just make these other conclusions based upon, Oh, we also measured RPE. You know, we also did this. Um, they were looking. Yeah, at I mean, that's definitely our aim. Our primary aim is all about the, yeah the feasibility from the user standpoint and, and the safety. So, um, 
And so that's, that's, that's why you scientifically, I think, you know, design a trial, like, you know, you, you put everyone through the intervention because, you know, or, or you do maybe a crossover, right? So you're, you know, you, yeah. you want to get as many people touching that intervention as you can. Yep. Um, right. Or else you don't know, right? Or, or, or you're, you're, you know less than you could have, right? If you, if yeah. you randomize them or, or don't give them that, that intervention. And I agree. I mean, you know, you want to try to, well, I think with BFR, it's relatively easy, right? You, you, you know what, what you should be shooting for, for the most part. Um, and so you try to be as aggressive as, as you can. Um, and then you can always back off. Right. But, uh, so. All right. So Mark, we can throw that one out. You're already one step ahead. Of those guys is from Texas actually. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the guy who had the other paper. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, that B strong one that showed nothing. Um, but there's a, there's another one though. Um, it's not a BFR, but it's ischemic preconditioning or, or remote ischemic preconditioning. So I don't know if you read this one, Mark. Um, I did. You sent it to me a, a while back, and I um, that was totally. I mean, all, like I said, all this is new to me. But that that was even is that newer. the British Medical Journal one you're talking about, John? BMJ, yeah. So it's BMJ neurology. Yeah, this is in, it's interesting. I thought. Yeah, this one. This one was actually good. So this is out of um, Sheffield, um, in in the United Kingdom. And so larger numbers, 75. Um, and so what they did was they um, had the controls do a sham. So their sham basically was 30 millimeters below diastolic blood pressure. So you're saying about 50 millimeters of mercury. So basically what the other group called an intervention, these people are calling their sham treatment, which most of us say 50 millimeters of mercury is a sham when we set up sham trials. I've got a couple of sham trials going on right now. Um, and then the other group, um, so we, we don't love this method of blood pressure, but if you do blood pressure on the arm, um, it's, it's a better marker for limb occlusion pressure than it's not valid in the leg. So they did uh, blood pressure in the arm and then they put a BP cuff or they put a cuff on at 30 millimeters of, of mercury above systolic blood pressure. And the typical kind of RIPC protocol is five on, five off for three rounds. That's pretty much what all of us are using. And it was a double blind randomized trial. So the, the patients were blinded, the, the testers were blinded. And primarily they were seeing, could you get improvements in a six minute walk test? If prior to walking, you put these cuffs on, you put it on and you did full ischemia. So remote ischemic precondition means you're trying to get 100% of occlusion or you did a sham treatment, could MS patients walk a six minute walk test further? And what they found was they did see an improvement. So the remote ischemic preconditioning group um, increased their walking time by 5.7% compared to 1.9%. Um, it was statistically significant um, compared to what the sham group did. Um, discomfort was definitely worse in the RPC. Again, that's what you should see. Um, 0.001. So it was, it was definitely harder, but they did increase their walking distance just by putting the limb into hypoxia um, prior. And the group in the intervention had worse ratings of MS compared to the sham group. So um, they actually had kind of a worse group from the baseline data and improved it. So that, that's kind of fascinating as well. This kind of hypoxia 
Um, remote ischemic preconditioning increase six minute walk time significantly in this group. In BMJ, I, I think it's a pretty well done study. And that, that's another kind of interesting way to maybe approach this. If your patient can't do leg press or calf press or something like this, there might be this hypoxic event you should put them in. And, and there's a really good um, editorial in Frontiers in Physiology, uh, Camera Lemarai, I don't know any of these authors on this one, but basically expanding the potential therapeutic options for RIPC using it in multiple sclerosis. And they really go into the neurologic kind of protective effects, the fact, the effect that MS is kind of this chronic hypoxia thing that goes on in the brain and these acute hypoxic bouts seem to elicit all the things that you would see your body trying to do to fight MS, like mm -hmm. release HIF-1A and stuff like that. So it's kind of fascinating because that, that's a deep commentary. I mean, you got to read it like eight times to really understand what the, what, what the hell they're talking about. But it's really going into this gene expression that they think hypoxia does with MS patients. Huh. I'd love, yeah, I haven't seen that one. I'd love to see that one. Yeah, it's open yeah, access. Frontiers in physiology. This article is really well done. Um, yeah, and uh, and and the effects are 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 are, are really uh, marked and, and look really important. I mean, you know, the only argument that against the you know the the, the patients in the in the RIPC group were, were more advanced disability. So, you, you know, only, only knock I could have is maybe, you know, they have more of a kind of a more of a window to improve because they, sure, were, sure. right. Um, yeah. versus, so I, I, I had to, to relook at what the baseline six minute walk scores were, but, um, and, and of course, anytime you're comparing unequal groups, it's kind of an issue, but, yep. um, but I agree. It's really interesting, um, and, and promising. Yeah, and I think that's something we can look at at these severely disabled people is just the gene expression we get from hypoxia or something when they can almost not exercise at all. Can we as therapists use hypoxia as this new modality? I mean, we've we talked about it. The Nobel Prize in Physiology last year was about hypoxia and how it, it manipulates gene expression. And, and that, that Frontiers in Physiology commentary just goes into you know, all the organ protective effects we see huh. from this. And so I, I, I definitely think that's a very cool kind of alternative route to go after. Because again, I would love to see the six and over people have an alternative where it might be almost impossible from a, right. from a therapist standpoint, like what can I do with this person? Right. It's like maybe we have to start working on gene expression, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 that that inter, there's so much that intersects there. I mean, in terms of like, one, yeah, I mean, clinically, you you kind of once someone comes in, they've been in a power wheelchair for years and and they haven't moved. You you, you have no hope that you're going to get them you do? up and moving again. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you yeah. want to maximize their quality of life and you shift to that whole kind of other model of you know prevention and compensation, but uh, to think about remediating there is not anything that anyone's ever considering i don't think so so that one is just, is just amazing and then also like you're just saying like um and i don't i don't think i've really considered this before but uh the idea you know where where rehab overlaps and 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 kind of intersects with 
gene expression and genetics and and that's I don't think otherwise really you know I, I know like on you know CAPTI criteria and stuff they they, they want us considering genetics and and those types of things but I don't think that that was with I don't think that had in mind the idea that we could do something that would affect it right it'd be more like hey we'll consider someone's genetics when we're going into this but uh, well and, and that's the thing you know it's like okay we're always with rehab like we're going to do this many sets of whatever with a yellow band because we're trying to increase real hypertrophy and we're doing nothing but the again the nobel prize guys stuff was like if you put a cell in hypoxia or you put a limb in hypoxia you can create angiogenesis. So maybe your treatment from rehab is like, you need to come in, I need to put you in hypoxia for weeks to get an angiogenic response. And, and we're, I'm working on a grant tomorrow morning. Um, you know, we, we see this expression of, of myos, you know, of, of stem cells, you know, um, not only from the muscle side, but also from the bone side. And so if we're getting this upregulation of all these kind of growth factors from this hypoxic event, I think, I think we might have to look at how, how we can use this on our side and say, this is, this, we're trying to build this person up to baseline. There's all, you know, there's Chris Fry, who's a brilliant physiologist, who's someone we work with quite a bit. You know, he showed that elderly individuals, part of the downside to them putting on muscle is their low level of capillary density. And if you can increase capillary density, their baseline level increases so they can start to actually put on some muscle and you increase capillary density, you can buy hypoxia. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's undeniable. It's, it's been put out in the highest tier journals by some of the, the brightest people out there. So, um, you know, for an MS patient, yeah, if they're doing this and you're increasing their capillary density, you've already maybe given them this baseline level that they can just keep going more and more and more. They could build off of. Right? Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's super interesting. Um, and, and it is, you know, it's what's really gotten me more excited about this is, you know, kind of coming at it from, Oh, this is like another tool I could use in my clinic to help people that have more advanced disability, get a little stronger um, and, and just make it more feasible. Um, to, to think about all the, the sort of the, the, the potential uh, of it. And so it's pretty cool. You know what we need, man? More day drinking. We'll figure this out. <laughs> it was daytime here until about a minute ago. So I just, I just need an invite next time. I didn't get the invite this last yeah, where time. Where were you, man? I was working the booth. Oh, you were. I was doing uh, uh, that. Was I, was body too. I think, I think body uh, treated us for that one. Did he? Good on, good on body, man. The silver silver <laughs> fox. All right. Well, good, man. This was super fun and super interesting. Yeah. I, th I think a lot of people are getting a lot from this. And um, thanks for what you do, brother. This is super yeah, cool. cool. I hope I didn't uh, screw too much up about MS diagnosis. We'll see. See you all the time. <laughs> uh, you know more than we know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I remembered. I remember the demyelination of the optic nerve from school. And, yeah, and yeah, optic neuritis. I remember yeah. that. And cool. I feel like there was something in there about erythrocyte sedimentation rates and that kind of thing, but I, don't, I might have that mixed up. But at least back in the day, it was a while ago school. So the other thing that's cool about this trial that made me remember, because I did read this, but you said this to me a while ago, is like how many interventions in rehab can you do double blind, you know, 
placebo controlled trials, none, right? I mean, right. uh, And so to be able to do something like that, um, yeah, it just puts you in a whole nother level of science, right? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, a ton of potential. Yeah. And you've got a, a lot of literature backing you up and a lot of smart people and good labs that are kind of backing up the basic science of what we're doing here. Yeah. So, so uh, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to chat a little more. Yeah. Um, yeah. I- well, let's let, let me close it up. So Kyle, yeah. do you do anything closing here? Nah, All right. we can just say peace out. Everybody. All right, Mark, man. <laughs> this is good, brother. Thanks so much that for coming fun. on. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.